Good morning, church. Good morning. We thank God for moms, right? Amen. What a wonderful gift they are to us. Uh, also, just wanted to say how great it is to have Brandon back and Erica back from school. Good to have you guys with us. Yeah. And uh, we've got Pastor John back two weeks in a row. How about that? Thank you for preaching last week, and thank you, church, for praying for me uh, as I finished up my class last week. It went well, and I'm done. Got my first class under my belt. Yeah. Praise God for that. And moms, just so you know, on your way out, we do have a small gift for you. This is our uh, a, a show of appreciation for all that you do. Uh, being a mom, I think, is probably one of the hardest jobs out there. Uh, I know a mom. I know a couple moms, and uh, it is a hard job. So let's get to the Word, shall we? So besides, besides the resurrection, there's only one miracle that's included in all four Gospels. And we're going to go there to that miracle today. It's a familiar one. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And the question it poses to us is this. Have you ever been in a position where... The odds were overwhelmingly against your favor. In these situations, with their backs against the wall, people tend to respond in one of two ways. First, misplaced confidence. I call this the the guns blazing approach, where you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you run headlong into the challenge, right? Bring it on. I'm I'm going to go down... Uh, with a fight here. So that's the guns blazing approach. The second is, is really a paralyzing despair that, that just gives up hope. But both of those are, are two sides of the coin of self-sufficiency because they're both looking to themselves. They're looking in and they're looking for the resources within. One determines, yeah, we got this. And the other determines, nope, we don't got this. So let's just give up. So that's typically the, the two ways that people respond. Today we're going to see Jesus and his disciples in a situation where their backs are against the wall. And Jesus is going to offer us a third approach, a better approach. So we're in John chapter 6 today. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn with me there. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1059. Once you're there, I invite you to stand with me, if you're able, out of reverence for God's word and follow along with me as I read. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. 
But what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It is rich and it is powerful. It is sharp and effective, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Father, may your word divide us this morning. May your spirit search our hearts and may we be made more like Jesus today because of the time we spend together in your word. And Father, we pray to that end. Spirit, be our teacher. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Let me share uh, a little info here to set the scene so we can feel the weight of this situation. A large crowd is following Jesus, but we're told that it's because of the miracles he was doing. He was healing the sick. So you've got some who are attracted to Jesus because he's really some form of affordable health care. But, but no doubt there were also among the mix here some thrill seekers. They wanted to see signs. They wanted to see wonders. They're chasing the show. Let's follow this Jesus guy because he's going to do something. It's going to be really cool, right? We want to we see what he's going to do. So this would be a crowd, uh, or this wouldn't be a crowd of, 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 of little old church ladies with fancy hats or anything like that. This is more like a rock concert. These are thrill seekers. They're people wanting to, they're there for the show. Now verse 10 tells us that there were 5,000 men in this crowd. But the truth is that this crowd could have actually been as large as 20,000 people. This is because it was the practice of the day that when taking a head count, you would count households, and you would count households by the heads of households who were the men. So they counted the men. But we know from the story that there were, there were women and children there. We know for sure there was one boy, because he's in the story, right? There's a boy there. But Matthew, in his account of the gospel, makes this even more clear. He tells us, Matthew 14, 21, that uh, there were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So there were women and children there as well. So this crowd is large, very large, 20,000 perhaps. Matthew's gospel also tells us that the place where they were, he adds this detail, the place where they were was desolate. They're, they're out in the wilderness. There's, you know, there's no McDonald's you know, around the corner, anything like that. There's no deli. Uh, it's a desolate place. So this is a massive crowd, and everyone's having a great time until they realize that, hey, it's getting late and we're hungry. And there's no food in sight. And in verse 5, it says that Jesus looks up and he sees a large, hungry crowd coming towards him. So what does he do? What any of us would have done, right? We turn to Philip. 
Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? How are we going to do this? And of course, this was a test. This is my first point, testing. Jesus asks Philip, uh, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? But verse 6 tells us that Jesus wasn't asking the question because he needed to know the answer. He already knew what he was going to do. Don't you just hate it when people ask you questions they already know the answers to, right? Doesn't that drive you crazy? Uh, And that's what's going on here. Uh, You see what he's doing though, right? He's leading Philip. He's leading Philip into a corner. He's leading him into despair in order to test his faith. How is he going to respond? How does Philip respond? Would Would he take the guns blazing approach or would he throw his hands up in despair? Well, Philip answers Jesus by informing him that 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough to buy, to to feed everyone here, even a small bite. This is overwhelming odds. 200 denarii, by the way, was the equivalent of eight months' wages for a worker at this time. They could probably buy a lot of bread. I could imagine. And this just shows you again how big this crowd really is. Look what Philip does. He's, he's good with figures. He does some quick math on his feet. He estimates the size of the crowd, how much bread it would take, how much it would cost to buy that much bread. This is what many of us do when we're backed up against the corner, against the wall. You get a large medical bill in the mail. What are we going to do? How are we going to pay this? Your car breaks down. Something goes wrong with your house. You crunch the numbers and you know that that kind of money is just not in your bank account. But notice that Philip left one really significant piece of this equation out. He left the Lord Jesus out of his calculations. And so do we, too much of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, right? We leave Jesus out of the equation. We, we look to ourselves and we think, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get ourselves out of this? I had someone tell me a while ago uh, that they thought our church was too small and that it had dipped below critical mass and this person didn't think our church would survive. They thought we should consider a merger with another church. Well, guess who was missing from that equation? I know the Lord's not done with this church, amen? Amen. Let's stop picking on Philip for a minute, and let's consider someone else. Peter's brother, Andrew, points out, hey, there's a young boy here. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. A wonderful lunch packed by a loving mother, I'm sure. But Andrew couldn't have been serious, really. I mean... He couldn't have been serious. And we know this because he adds this little kind of qualification. But what good is this? What, what good is this really going to do? I mean, there, there is this. I mean, in light of the situation, it's almost humorous, right? But uh, they're, they're grasping. They're grasping for solutions. So what's, uh, what is Jesus going to do? What is this boy going to do? We're going to look at the boy next, and we're going to talk about trusting. That's the next point. 
How will the boy respond? Will he trust? Will he pass the test? First, understand that this boy is poor. He's poor. And we know this because barley loaves were the bread of, of peasants. Okay, that's what the peasants ate. Second, uh, these aren't giant loaves of bread like you'd get at Mario's down the street. Uh, they're likely small cakes. Uh, think of something like a dinner roll. You've got five small dinner rolls. And the fish, these aren't like, you know, the catch of the day, right? I caught a fish this big kind of thing, right? This, these are little fish, uh, probably pickled. Maybe think of a sardine, right? So he's got a few fish here. And likely the fish were to go with the barley loaves because the barley loaves are probably quite dry. And so you kind of, it's almost like a condiment for the bread, you know, to make it more, uh, more moist and more palatable. So this is not a lot of food. This is a peasant boy's meager lunch. And here's the principle. To truly trust Jesus, you have to have a proper evaluation of yourself. Yourself and your resources. You need to know that you're powerless. And that your resources are insignificant and insufficient. But in the hands of Jesus, insignificant, insufficient things become significant. And they become sufficient. They become abundant even. And he is mighty to save those who are powerless. But you need to know that you're powerless in the first place. Hear how Jesus is, uh, talks to the, he writes this letter to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. He says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea did not have a proper evaluation of themselves or their resources. They didn't know that they were, in fact, powerless. You need to know this. You need to know this. So so what will this boy do? Notice in verse 11 what it says. It says that Jesus took the loaves. He took the loaves. This is a scary thing. Think about it. This boy, he's surrounded by 20,000 starving people. And the thought must have crossed his mind. What good is this going to do? Kind of like Andrew, right? Uh, But he must have been thinking this too. Thanks to my incredible, always planning ahead mom, if I... If I hold on to this, at least I can feed myself, right? At least I can feed myself. There's, there's nourishment here for me if I hold on to this. But he lets go of it. He lets go of it. And this is a scary thing. He gives up control. He's given up all that he has to sustain himself, all that he was trusting in to, to feed himself, and he puts it in the hands of Jesus. This is an incredible act of trust, giving up a sure lunch in exchange for the unknown, fully relying on Jesus to come through. And in the end, the boy gets more food than he would if he had kept the lunch to himself. He gets more in return for what he gave. And here's the principle. If if you want to see the grace of God in your life, you've got to surrender control. You've got to let go of whatever it is that you're trusting to get you through. 
your bank account, your wisdom, your knowledge, your wealth, your strength. You've got to put it in the hands of Jesus. And the reality is this. Eight months wages wouldn't even give everyone a bite of food, but a poor boy's lunch in the hands of Jesus was an overabundance. This is the economy of God. You surrender to God, you're nothing, and he makes it everything. Amen? Let's consider this uh, final point, triumphing. Consider the power of God in the triumph here when we trust him. First, notice that this is really, what Jesus does is is very matter-of-fact in the text. It's a very plain description of what Jesus does. Uh, He instructs everyone to sit down, everyone have a seat. There's green grass here, we're told. And by the way, that's one way we know that it was Passover, because the grass would have been green that time of year before the summer heat withered it. Uh, So he instructs everyone to sit down, find a nice patch of grass. Uh, He gives thanks for the bread and the fish. And he just starts breaking it, passing it out. And, And that's it, you know? There's no fire from heaven. There's no magic incantations. There's no uh, fanfare behind this, right? Here's Jesus doing a miracle, everybody, right? There's, it, it, it appears to be such little effort for a big problem, for a big problem. Some of you, your problems keep you from coming to Jesus in the first place because you think that your problems are too big. Or that your sin is too great. That somehow God can't forgive that sin. Whatever that is. Fill that in in your minds. Because we all got one, right? God can't forgive that sin. Or he's forgiven it too many times already. And you've somehow reached the limits of God's grace. We tell ourselves this, don't we? It's nonsense. It's nonsense. You can't out sin God's grace. Amen? You can't out sin God's grace. Remember these words in John chapter 1 that we looked at at the beginning of our series here. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. You're dealing with a God who created the universe by the power of his word. You can't tell me that your problem is too big for a God who speaks things into existence from nothing. Your problem's not too big. Your sin is not too great. And it's an easy thing for Jesus. Next, consider verse 11. John tells us that everyone had as much as they wanted. It wasn't just that everyone got a bite or a little bit to kind of hold them over. They got as much as they wanted. They were hungry. Who here can throw it down like the best of them when you're hungry? Right? The buffet, look out. Uh, I'm coming back for seconds. They got as much as they wanted. They ate their fill. No one left hungry in a crowd of 20,000 people. Again, Jesus takes what is insufficient. He makes it sufficient. He makes it enough. But more than that, it's an abundance. There's leftovers. There's 12 baskets full of leftovers. There's more at the end than there was at the beginning. 
We serve a God who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or imagine, church. And as is usually the case with Jesus, there's more going on here than just feeding people bread. In verse 14, after seeing this sign, the people rightly perceive that Jesus is the prophet. Not a prophet, the prophet. What's going on here? Remember John tells us in verse 4 that this is happening, all this is happening during the Passover. This is a time when on people's minds was remembering their history, the history of their nation and their delivery from slavery under the hand of the Egyptians. And they're thinking about Moses. This is all in their minds. They're thinking about Moses, whom God used to bring about this epic deliverance. This was a time of nationalistic fervor, kind of like our 4th of July, right? Everyone's got, got that on the mind. And the people were looking for this prophet to come to deliver them from the Romans, just like Moses delivered them from the Egyptians. But this kind of thinking misses the point. Jesus is way more than a liberator from the Romans. They're looking for that, but he is something completely different. Look in Deuteronomy. Let's let's unpack this a little bit. Look in Deuteronomy. Uh, We read this prophecy. It's in uh, chapter 18, verse 15. It'll be on the screen. But here's the prophecy uh, that it, that's on everyone's mind. This is the prophet to come, right? It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear Again, the voice of the Lord my God to see his great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is the prophecy. This is what's on everyone's mind. Jesus is this prophet. But as is typically the case, the people don't fully grasp the significance or the meaning of this. I plan to talk more about this next week, but for now, let's consider how Jesus is both like Moses, but is also a better Moses, a better prophet. And the key is the text I just read. At Horeb, it says, this described a pivotal time in the history of Israel. This is when Moses met with God on the mountain to receive the law. And Moses had just come down. And he's, he's read the Ten Commandments. But picture the scene. This mountain's covered in clouds and thick darkness. There is thunder and there is lightning all around. The mountain is smoking because the Lord descended on it in fire. And there's the sound of a, a loud trumpet blast and the people feel to their core that they're in the presence of a holy God. And they're terrified. They're terrified. And they plead with Moses, don't let him speak to us anymore. Let him speak to you and then you can tell us what he says, but don't, we're, we're too scared. This is terrifying. And so Moses would serve as a mediator 
He would go to God and God would speak with him and then Moses would pass the message on to the people. But very soon, the people would grow impatient. They rebel against their God. While Moses was still on the mountain meeting with God, the people tell Aaron, Moses' brother, hey, make for us some, some gods that we can follow out of gold. This angered the Lord. Because he's a jealous God. His glory he will not share with another. He tells Moses that he was going to consume this people in his wrath. He's going to start over. And God would have been perfectly just and right in doing this. But God is not only a God of wrath. He's a God of mercy. And he's a God of grace. Listen to these words, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him. This is when he was showing Moses his glory. He declares, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Amen? It's, it's sometimes hard to see the, the mercy and the grace of God in the Old Testament. Some of us, maybe we grew up seeing a different God in the Old Testament, but the same God is there as is in the New Testament. And here we see a picture of just the mercy and the grace of God. And this is what Moses does as a mediator between God and his people. He stands in the gap and he appeals to the mercy and the grace of God. And God relents and he shows mercy. And so Jesus, being this new and better prophet like Moses, stands in the gap for you. He stands in the gap for you. Like the people of Israel, you have all rebelled against God. You've all chosen to go your own way and his wrath is upon you as it was upon the nation of Israel. The problem is insurmountable. You have no means in yourself with which you can appease the wrath of God. You can't calculate your way out of this like Philip tries to do with the bread. The only way out is to look to Jesus to provide. The only way out is to trust Jesus. He's the only bridge between rebels and a holy God. What you need more than anything is the one thing you can't do for yourselves. You need to be forgiven. But how? How is this forgiveness possible? Hebrews 9.22 tells us that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so Jesus provides his own body as a perfect substitute for you. He stood in the gap. When he died on the cross to pay for your sin and he rose again on the third day. Remember, it's, it's Passover. And on that first Passover, the blood of the lamb was spread over the doors and the wrath of God passed over these homes. And John has already told us that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what, what should you do? How do we respond? First, you've got to know that before God, you're powerless. Your resources are insignificant. 
Don't trust in yourself and your meager rations. But don't give up in despair. This is the third and better way. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Trust Jesus to provide for you. Like the boy, let go of control. Put your life into the hands of Jesus and receive from him life to the full brimming over in abundance more than you can ask or imagine. Matthew 16, 25, I'll leave you with this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for the abundance you offer us. When we come to you poor, blind, and naked, you give us an abundance When we surrender it all to you, you give us more than we could ever hope for uh, on our own. Father, we thank you for the prophet like Moses and your son Jesus, who is the, uh, the, the true and better mediator between God and man, who could satisfy for all time the wrath of God by his blood shed on the cross. We thank you for the high price that he paid for our sin so that we can be forgiven and made part of your family. We thank you for the bridge that Jesus is between rebels and a holy God. Help us to trust. Help us to trust more. It's so easy to forget and to look to ourselves and to our meager resources. Help us to remember that your resources are limitless, that your grace has no limits, and that it's free. So Father, remind us daily of the gospel our need for Jesus, that we may be a people who live with great hope, not in despair or in great pride, but with hope and a, and a perfect Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.